Um, alright. We're going. Oh, great. And when I say we're going, we're we going. We really are going. It seems darker in this room than usual. What are you gonna do? Yeah, um, it's because it's nighttime. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Mm. I don't know if the listeners are just complain about, uh, the time change and about the darkness, but if they'd like to hear us complain, you know, let us know. We can complain some more. <laughs> or just means. go back to a year ago's episode <laughs> yeah. and listen to all the complaints <laughs> in the intros then. Um, I, think, I, I, think, I think my complaints are the same as they were a year ago, but about 15% worse. Like more, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm suffering more. I think someone's messing with us and like, it does actually get darker. Like each year, like it does get a bit worse because I never remember it being this bad. And then I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's bad. <laughs> oh, it's really bad. What are you gonna do? Yeah. This year it's really, really bad, <laughs> yeah, folks. I uh, I work with someone who just got one of those like lights, but it's just a light. But it's like a I don't know what they called it, but it's like seasonal affective disorder lights or whatever. And it's just a light. I don't know. I don't know. There's not, there's not much else to say other than that somebody's light. got a light. Somebody's a got a light. light. Yeah. I'm like, I can nice. use some more light. Nice. Mm. I, I do recommend a sunrise alarm clock, mm. which I, I have one of those. That's it's not idea. a special light. It's just a lamp. Mm. But it gradually illuminates my room. Really? Sort of. Oh, okay. Interesting. Which is good. That's nice. Sort of wakes me before my alarm goes off sometimes. Yeah. I hate my alarm. For some reason, my alarm went off this morning and I just laughed. <laughs> I like, don't know. I, it was It was almost like a nice laugh. It was. <laughs> it was almost like brought me to hysterics. Like the the plight that I was in, sort of like I was so ground down that it was just hysterical. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Which sort of like it, it enlivened my morning. I suppose for yeah. about ten minutes. I was like, oh, this is all right. <laughs> You're like, oh, what am I going to do today? And they're like, oh, I got to go to work. Same old shit. <laughs> I. Uh... That's. I mean, that 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 is the most galling thing, right? You just give over all the daylight hours to. Well, yeah. We saw some sunshine today. So yeah, it was a sunny I was day. fucking sitting inside. From the, uh, from the inside. So it seemed great. Time. It seemed really nice while it lasted. <laughs> it wasn't as muddy when I walked back down to work or from work today. Um, my alarm Sorry clock for some reason the is just Sleep's Holy Mountain, and I hate it. I really like that song. Now I kind of don't really like it anymore, but it's just really loud. Because a while ago, I was like, oh, I'll just wake up with this like one note. It'll just immediately wake me up. But now it's just like it scares me every day. And I don't know. What are you going to do? Change your alarm? I don't know. <laughs> Can't be can't be bothered, quite frankly. Um, Starting your day with fear sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like, why am I so anxious? <laughs> <laughs> um, ah, well, I don't know what else is going on. Things are getting better every day, um, and uh, as we said last week, climate talks were a success, and we're back on track to uh, be good again. Yeah. Things are going to be good again. So, yeah, thank you, Boris, for bringing on socialism. Um, yeah. What did he say? He was like, I don't know, get it together, everybody. We need to end this thing. It's like, cool, thanks. But awesome. Great. Yeah, great. Okay. The, the pep rally solution to climate <laughs> yeah. change. Come on, guys. Oh, well, I'll stop using my triple. I use three plastic straws every day when I when I order my drinks. So you know, uh-huh, I'll stop doing uh-huh, that, I guess. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll sort you out. <laughs> I saw a really galling, well, a, a, a headline that really galled me. Mm. Um. Which was somebody was making a proposal that everybody ought to have a carbon budget. Oh my god, then, that's that's like the Uber lib yeah. like, <laughs> response. And then you can trade, you get a certificate oh, from of that, course. and you then can you can trade your certificates. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. that's a good idea. I can sell my yearly <laughs> flight abroad to 
to a billionaire. Exactly. But basically nothing. And then that person will start a car company that will make them have a quarter of a trillion dollars. It's the perfect plan, Dan. And then there can be a futures market in the trading of personalized <laughs> carbon. I mean, okay, this is just how you make money, right? You just come up with a dumbass idea like that. Jesus. Yes. Invent a market, work out how to financialize it. It's like, There's a guy. Yeah. I invent markets. And then deny even the possibility of any kind of collective solution <laughs> exactly i'm actually would prefer to compete with other people when it comes to saving the planet so, you know, <laughs> that's how my change happens uh -huh, uh -huh. Ugh. Ugh. all right so things are good all right Every so yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's fine <laughs> Everything's going well. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. We can reorientate ourselves back toward a patient, gradual strategy <laughs> for building socialism uh, over a long period of time and mm. not worry that in the meantime, the like ecosystem and, and, and <laughs> upon which we are uh, mildly dependent sure, might, yeah, only might collapse. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> You know what? Here's the here's an idea to encourage purification of the party. Every time you split, you get some sort of coupon, and you can trade your coupons, and you can invent markets and selling these coupons and futures. And if you just keep splitting, and you have the purest party possible, there you go. That's the solution <laughs> to revolutionary strategy. I figured it out. I think that what is that called? Trotskyism. Hey, zing. <laughs> um, uh -huh. Well, speaking of trots, Dan, uh -huh. speaking of these these people, um, these sickos, I'm just kidding. I almost, as we, I was just saying, kind of don't really understand what that means. Um, but speaking of those people, we're back. Revolutionary Strategy, Mike McNair, Part 3, The Issue of Revolutionary, not Revolutionary, Left Unity. Um, we're finishing the goddamn book, Chapters 7, 8, and 9. Um, I'm stoked. I really appreciated reading this. This has been one that we wanted to read for a long, long time. We're finally getting around to doing it just in the nick of time. Um, and uh, yeah, I really appreciated this. And he definitely bought it back around at the end. I was really worried this was going to be one of those books where it's like, here's my plan for everything. And then it's like, here's why everything sucks. And then the book ends. And it's like, well, what's your plan? <laughs> but my man comes together. He puts forward a plan. Um, yeah. And I thought it was really good. It was really interesting. And I can't wait, Dan, to get into it with you. Yes, I'm very excited as well. I also thoroughly enjoyed finishing these last three chapters. Um, once again, continue to highly recommend the book. There were some really interesting bits, really interesting discussions of strategy, interesting discussions of history, needless minutiae about the splitting of Trotskyist organizations all the way through the 20th century and the various different names of the various... Socialist Internationals, um, the International Bureau of oh Socialist Parties. It's like the they're, it's International like, Committee. They're, it's like an SNL sketch at a certain point where it's like, I'm the International Committee of the Secretariat. Yeah. I'm the International <laughs> Secretariat of the Committee. It's like, oh, good one, guys. Although in in the um, in the final chapter, chapter nine, he gives mm. us sort of a fourteen point summary. He hits us with it of his strategy. Although it's sort of differentiated between strategy. Hmm. And what are the three headlines? Strategy, party, party and internationalism? Yeah, I like think that. so. Yeah, yeah, um, So there is some amount of differentiation. So hmm. you propose the idea that we might just go through those 14 points hmm. um, and it will function as something as a summation of all of the book. And also we can discuss those portions that are relevant to the to the what's strategy. elaborated in the three chapters that we read this week. Yeah. More broadly. And um, 
will give us a bit more structure than to hang our episode on. And just go. We usually do. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask? Frankly, we get I'm started? quite nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? We delete this entire thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. If the podcast is gone tomorrow, <laughs> you know, you know, you know we failed. You know that you don't because <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, before we get started, Dan, I'd like to ask you: Have you? Are you now? I know the answer is no to that. Or have you, or ever, have been? you ever been part of a Trotskyist sect? Um, no. Nominally? Uh, I've been in the vicinity. Okay. All right. Okay. But never, never <laughs> okay. a member. All right. Well, yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. Hence why I actually have a general lack of understanding as to what Trotskyism is. <laughs> Although, once again, <laughs> once again, I'm, I'm uh, more clear than I was. Yes. Before reading this book and these these chapters, because there are once again yeah. uh, significant critiques of the strategy of the Trotskyists. Yeah. Well, it's like our never-ending quest to figure out what the fuck Leninism is. It's yeah. like, well, what's Trotskyism? Do Trotskyists know? Did Trotsky? Did Lenin? Like, I don't know. What are you going to do? Presumably one of them did. Um, all right. Well, well no, um, no, I, I almost feel like it's the opposite of that, right? Huh. People who have isms named after them have no idea what it is that... Oh, sure. Especially <laughs> after they die and people yeah. are like, we've changed everything. However... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah it's sort of like um, rewriting of history kind of thing. Yeah, In 100%. hindsight, Marxism yeah. has always been X. Yeah. yeah. Even though... Exactly. I mean, Leninism, as I understand it, is just when you have a totalitarian party, right? And it takes over everything. That's what it is. Okay, then there you go. I'm sure that's what Lenin (laughs) thought. Let's not look into that any further. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yeah, it's it's taking um, uh, a series of tactics specific to a historical circumstance that may or may not have been correct for that circumstance and then applying them to all time and space and dimensions. In perpetuity. in, In perpetuity. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we figured it out then. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get into it because I hopefully we'll have stuff to say about all 14 of these. And when mm. we do, I'd like to be able to, in theory, get through all of them. Um, okay, so he hits us with his first point of strategy. He begins to tease us, I think, earlier on in these last three chapters about like, okay, here's what I'm working towards. You kind of guessed it, but here are like some things that I believe in that we should kind of all try to move uh, towards. And then he hits us with these 14 points. The first one um, is under the heading of strategy, and it's basically, I'll just read a little bit from it. He says, there's no way forward from capitalism other than the self-emancipation of the working class, the ideas of a peasant-led revolution, a long-term strategic alliance of the proletariat and the peasantry as equals, of advanced social democracy, of a broad democratic alliance, have all proved to be false. I think that one, like, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't really know what else there is to say about that other than, the, like, the basic maxim of, you know, the work of, uh, I always butcher this for some reason. The work of emancipating the working class is the work of the working class itself, whatever. You know what I mean? But, like, the basic idea of the people who can change society for the better are the people who have the interest to change society for the better. And this idea of, like, this ties in with either entryism or coalitions or even, like, you know, like he says here, a long-term strategic alliance between the proletariat and the peasantry. It's like, it's not going to work. The only people that can change society in the long term for the better, for the best, uh, in terms of socialism, is the proletariat. And it's the working class. And it's going to be a bit of a disaster if you try and mess with that. Um, so, yeah, I give that uh, three bingos. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Yeah, you're right. We've come across this idea many times that this stuff... One of the very core tenets of a Marxist political strategy is 
the working class should emancipate themselves. And we do find this notion written through very various elements of the strategy, right? When it comes to what kind of political party, when it comes to relationships and alliances and how the political party will orientate itself, mm. how the party and the class will orientate itself toward the state. Like, almost fundamental to all of these is this question of, like... Um, the 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 nature that the working class should be responsible for emancipating themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we've come across it in the sense of like, and we'll get into this more in I think some of the next points, but like socialism from above <clears throat> or socialism from below, not as a moral question of like, can we just rely on like enlightened despots to just bring us socialism? Uh, and even and as you're saying, the idea of like how to operate and navigate the political, like the bourgeois political landscape. How do you operate in that? How do you make alliances? How do you not make alliances while still being this, like, opposition? Um, and, you know, making no bones about it, you represent the working class, full stop. Um, you can't do that if you represent the working class and, like, okay, and the petty force was it, right? It's like, no, you have to represent the working class. And uh, he's right. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's good stuff, folks. It's good. Well, should we go on to the second point then, which yeah. is... Um, sort of a reiteration of something that was in I think the first episode and maybe in the very first chapter which is about defining the working class and he has Mm. this definition of the working class which is everybody that's reliant on the wage fund which is a way of sort of like liberating uh, ideas about Marxist strategy from a strict adherence to a very specific idea of who the working class are whether it's like the industrial working class or um some very sort of narrow definition. This is almost the broadest possible definition that you can have. So it's like not only are workers drawn into this definition, but all the dependents of the workers, sort of spouses and children, plus people who are excluded from being able to work, the unemployed. Um, My only sort of question about this is, I mean, it's good in some respects that it makes the definition incredibly broad and wide. Yeah. but it almost, I feel like it almost becomes something of an ab- abstraction, perhaps. Although it's not necessarily mm. problematic. Uh, maybe it's a good thing that you can almost include everybody, anybody and everybody. I mean, um, given that the role that he gives to the working class is one which is um, to be the universal emancipator of all humanity. <laughs> no big, <laughs> like, biggie. There you go. Um a degree of almost universality to the definition. Yeah. Sort of like seems to fit with that role sure. that he gives them, I suppose. Well, yeah. I mean, I think a couple things. I think like, I think it's pretty baller of somebody to just come out and be like, in a in a Marxist sense, in a work like this, which is as all-encompassing as this, and just be like, okay, I'm just going to come out and just define the working class. Because I feel like a lot of people will just be like, okay, well, you don't want to make too strict of a definition, because what about these people? What about that people? I really appreciate this. And I think I agree with what you're saying about like the totality is like, I don't know, it's good. And it really speaks to like, socialism would be like, much better for everybody. Like even the like robber barons, I don't know. This will get into like some kind of like wooey, like whatever stuff. But like even like Jeff Bezos would be better for him. Like, I don't know. Like he'd be more fulfilled. He'd be like, I don't know. Obviously he's not on the wage fund or anything like that. But I don't know. I think it's really good that he's able to just come out and define the working class, give you like these parameters for it. And 
I think if you want to like be more specific about it, you absolutely can because you can, you know, use this to be like, okay, well, there are people who um, are reliant on the wage fund, but like there's a bit of a gray area because maybe they own some stock at their business or maybe they do this or maybe they don't do that. Um, so I don't know. I think I really appreciate him not getting bogged down in this. He finds plenty of other stuff to get bogged down in in this book, and this isn't one of them, and it's something that every Marxist ever has always gotten bogged down in. And I think it's really useful just to be like, when you are having these conversations with people, just to go, well, here's what the working class is. It's everyone relying on the wage fund. Boom. So yeah, I don't know. I, I uh, Three bingos as well. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just basically drawing on the idea that the working class or the proletariat are just propertylessness or yeah. propertyless, right? Yeah. Um, and he's sort of hinting, which we're going to go on to later, like hinting at a... Um, the centrality of that to the strategy and that the working class have this um, collectivity, which is going to then go on to influence the ways in which they would take over and reorientate the yeah. the state yeah. and society, which gives it this sort of like universal emancipatory quality, which stems from their propertylessness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, that leads us in, I think, to point three, which... Isn't, I don't know, there's not there's not a whole lot here other than just basically the idea that, like, he says, the first sentence is, he, the self-emancipation of the working class requires the working class to lay its hands collectively on the means of production. So it's just like, okay, that's kind of just like a definition for what moving past capitalism is. It's like mm -hmm. you need to all collectively have access to the means of production, and if you don't, then that ain't it. That's not socialism. And, you know... In point two, he's like, here's the thing that keeps us separated, uh, or what makes us the working class is our separation from the means of production. Uh, here's what we have to do to rectify that. So it's kind of like two and three are kind of like they lead on nicely from each other. It's kind of like one in the same point, um, but it's one worth making. And at the end of it, he says, it means that the working class collectively decides how the means of production are used. Um, doesn't go into detail at all about what that means or how that's done. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't know, I kind of respect it because like, I think we'll get onto this later, but, like, one of the main criticisms I have of this book isn't one that's justified in any way, shape, or form. Like, when we were reading Fundamental Principles, I was really frustrated where I was like, okay, but this doesn't say anything about how this happens or what these forms are going to look like. And then this book is, like, the exact opposite of that because it's like, well, here's our revolutionary strategy, but then doesn't get into anything at all beyond that of, like the kind of, like, important necessities of what socialism or communism would actually look like in an economic sense or even, in like, a sense at all, kind of beyond just, like, democratic republicanism. But suffice it to say, I think that when you're writing a book just about revolutionary strategy, as he is here, kind of all you need to say about that is what he says in point three, which is um, it's not self-emancipation, it's not emancipation until there's equal access to the means of production. And so there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it brings us back once again to... Some of those core tenets that he's hinting at in the first chapter of the book and when he's talking about uh, strategy stemming or what would have been Marx's strategy, um, i.e. that the the working class is propertyless and it needs to, in order to free and emancipate itself, it needs to reappropriate the productive capacity of the society in which we live. But he's saying that like, we can't do this individually and it has to be done collectively, which sort of brings us back to the collective and communal and cooperative aspects of the working class that make them specific to that task of uh, collectivizing production and therefore um, advancing as 
toward um, communism. It's kind of like a progressive vision for exactly, communism yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. You brought up, uh, Dan, in our recent YouTube video, mm. only available on our YouTube channel, about um, you brought up the quote from Marx in the Party Ouvrier, Ouvrier, some might say, um, just <laughs> yeah. about like, how are we going to do this? How are we all going to have access to means of production? Are we going to go back to something that didn't actually exist, which is just like everybody making their own things in their own home? Um, or are we going to have this progressive vision? And here, he's, yeah, he's saying progressive vision, which funnily enough, I didn't make the connection, the very obvious connection between that idea from Marx and the entire Fundamental Principles book. But that's gotten me thinking about it a lot because they basically rehash that exact bit in the preface and in the introduction and everything is saying like, because uh, their whole point, right, is like, the right of disposal, where you can't actually have literal right of disposal, but you, you know, can have access to the right of disposal in a progressive vision. And that's what McNair is doing here. So, yeah, it's progressive. It's good stuff. Um, well, I, I mean, this is the first moment, at least in these 14 points, where he brings up this idea of democratic republicanism. Mm. Uh, now, it's been discussed in this. It is discussed in the in chapters 7 and 8 of this book, or in, particularly in chapter 7, which is all about the 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 form of the state and what attitude uh, and uh, strategy Marxists have put toward what they ought to do with the state, how it ought to be radically reorientated and reformed. Um, and Michael McNair uses several phrases. He uses radical democracy. He uses uh, republicanism and democratic republicanism. Extreme democracy. Extreme democracy. Like, Maybe that's the phrase he keeps using. Um, <laughs> Which is quite an interesting piece of uh, terminology in some ways because it does lend itself quite easily to adapting that principle into things which you can actually plug into a political program, and it's something that he does do in this book. Right, a lot of the a lot of the universal characteristics, shall we say, of the program that he's putting forward are all around how what proposals you would make for reorientating the mm. state such that it was like radically transformed. Um, and a lot of this are around various different types of democratic intervention. In the British context, it's all about like either taking away, getting rid of particularly anti-democratic aspects of the constitution we have at the mm. moment, disempowering people from a, from sort of like a private ownership of in the form of like position within a bureaucracy position within um, a sort of authority structure making as many posts as possible um, predicated on election we're going to go on to it a bit later i think but like sort of dissolving mm. decision making power to the places where it most obviously is needed to be made kind of thing so like devolving power as much as possible um and he, and what that is made a condition of the possibility of uh communism as we've been describing it because there is no way that you could run the kind of state that we've been talking about in terms of like collective running of the productive apparatus of society without a corresponding uh radical commitment to democracy at all levels, mm. whether that's like what we would recognize as uh, bourgeois liberal freedoms extended further or whether they're ones unique to what would be required of a sort of post-capitalist um, worker state, mm. I suppose. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I'm interested to talk about that because he, he, he phrases it uh, much more as an organizational question in terms of actual, like, how we organize our organizations um, when he does talk about democratic republicanism. But I think let's get through the strategy bits and then we'll get on to sure. that because he does have some really good ideas. Sure, yeah. I'm, and now I'm looking ahead. I've sort of just foreshadowed the next point, which is, like, there has to be a political power component to... Mm the strategy of the working class kind of thing. It has to seek to take political power and um, their political proposal for what the state has to be ought be democratic republicanism. And in a lot of ways, what he's advocating for is a political strategy which makes the working class and it's the party which it which represents the working class to be one which is entirely oppositional to the political status quo and yeah makes that their fundamental defining factor i suppose yeah well it's funny too because he also brings up earlier on about how like you shouldn't accept uh what's the word like uh responsibility for government until you are able to like see these radical democratic radically democratic changes pushed through um and yeah, I mean, that's interesting. It, I, that's kind of like a e- very easy thing to say. I don't know, like, if you're handed power before any of that happens, how are you just going to be like, nah, how does that actually, like, really fit in with this idea of, like, continental, which will come on to, like, only taking power when things are ready on the continent as opposed to just in your own one little, like, country or whatever. Um, but it makes sense, right? Like, I mean, you don't want to be part of a party that is, like, seen to be the enemy. As, like, you take power and the state is still the same and you're still trying to operate within, like, these bourgeois constraints, even if you are somehow able to get a majority as a, like, communist party. Like, you wouldn't want to be seen as the oppressors when you're like, but I'm trying to do the best in the state that I can. Like, I don't know, people don't really care, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. All of that makes sense. I love all of the things that he lists about, like, what needs to happen because it's just like, wow, this would scare the shit out of, like, the average lib or even just, like, the average reactionary or something. He talks about, like, you know, the typical, like, all public officials need to be elected and recallable, universal military training, the right to bear arms, uh, political rights in the armed forces, sure, generalized trial by uh, jury. He talks about, like, abolishing copyright, abolishing the right to free trade. It's just like, you go, Mike McNair. <laughs> you go, king. Um all of those, I mean, each of those things, I think we could talk about in depth. Um, but I don't know. I don't, especially like the universal military training thing. It's very much like a cursory, uh, hey, everybody needs to be able to not just be de or unalienated from the means of production, but also from like protecting themselves. He just kind of drops that and then just moves on. Um, so I think, I don't know. I don't have much to say on it now. I think until we like actually discuss like, what that would mean in depth or like maybe actually read something on what that could possibly mean. But suffice it to say, like, I think he's right. It just would depend on how you did it. Like, cause you wouldn't want to, again, it's just this idea. Like you wouldn't want to take power and then still have cops. It's like, okay, communist cops are still cops. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways it's all designed to remove or radically change the state's current role, which is, that sort of off-quoted line about Mm. it having a monopoly on the use of power, right? Like, the state as it stands at the moment is in a position to exercise force against the population. And there are certain sections in this when he's sort of talking about um, the constitutive, I suppose, character of 
the the state as it exists under capital, capitalism, where it's like different political forces are vying for the right to uphold that state in a lot of ways and uphold and be responsible for that state capacity. And so I kind of think that here the answer, what he's trying to answer is, so what are we going to do to disarm, dissolve or radically yeah. transform that capacity or that portion of the state's function, I suppose. Um, yeah. And they sort of like... The, one of the constants it would seem in like um, uh, socialist programs is this, as you say, like universal conscription or mm. uh, universal training in uh, defense and the right to bear arms, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And just like community protection, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he might have. Go ahead. There's a, there's also a point, I don't know how relevant this is, there's also a point in those last few chapters that we've read today where he mm. sort of talks about this question of state power in relationship to i guess revolutionary strategy not for like the 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 post revolutionary state settlement but more of the strategy toward revolution itself and the question of challenging state power mm. and he he doesn't he sort of like criticizes or poos the idea that purely by arming a citizenry you can go up against the state sure, and really what say, really yeah. what he's saying it's sorry if i've stolen something from you there <laughs> but the, it, it, uh, only the, the only point that he's making kind of thing is that like the only way you can really vie for or combat state power is to infiltrate that state power i.e to like undermine the willingness of particularly the army to follow the commands of the bourgeois state. Yeah. Infiltration, he makes the point it that it's like... sounds like doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's infiltration, but it's it's more so, I think, just like finding ways to undermine and completely delegitimize their political power. Because it isn't this idea of like, I don't know, a lot of this book, I feel like a tanky could be like, yeah, hell yeah, and completely misconstrue it and be like, that's my favorite book. And I think that might be one of them because like, it isn't the idea of like, entryism into the military dude like that's never gonna work like what it's the idea of like you know these ideas are very widespread and the it just it it just happens that the the political power and the political legitimacy of say the military or the police falls apart until the discipline completely shatters and they just won't take orders anymore it's basically that's like exactly what happened uh, at least for like the petrograd garrisons in 1917 and stuff like that um but yeah you're right he also makes the point that like he he kind of laughs at when the Comintern, I think, said something along the lines of, what we got to do is arm the proletariat and disarm the bourgeoisie. And he has like a bit of a zinger one-liner where he's like, disarm the bourgeoisie. It's like, that's so empty of content that like, we don't even need to talk about it. That's like, <laughs> what does that even mean? Disarm the bourgeoisie. Because yeah, this is like the reactionary militia chud's wet dream, right? It's like the idea that like, buy enough like semi-automatic rifles and then you can take on like the police department and the military it's like that fake news no you can't like i think he used the example of like small arms against like apaches or something like that it's like it's never gonna work and like even yeah i don't know we've talked about this on the show before but like when you go into even small towns in america the police departments are so decked out it's like you're never gonna be able to defeat them with like all the barricades in the world right so it's like the way around that is this kind of abstract notion of just delegitimizing and breaking down political power through just the working class movement in general, right? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah, there you go. I'm reminded of a section in this latter third of the book where he's talking about 
the party and he sort of gives a more expanded definition of a party than what you would normally think of when you think of a political party. Mm. He's basically broadly saying that regardless of what you call it, whether you call yourself a political yeah. party or an alliance or a confederation or whatever, like if you are representative of a social force and you if you seek to if you seek to change society, obviously you're going to have to have answers to the pressing political questions of the day, but also you're going to represent all elements of society yeah to be a social force who's representing society is to be a party whatever you call it and it sort of plays into this question of militarism because you if you're a social force that's so if that sort of like extends so fully throughout society that you're in all areas you've reached all places you you almost sort of preempting some other points that are coming up shortly, but like if you're so majoritarian that you have influence throughout society, then you're also going to have an influence in that society's armed echelons, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> get a yeah, bit colorful sure. with the language because, like, I mean, soldiers are working class. They're exactly. Some of the yeah, most, yeah. like, I'm not just trying to introduce like gradations of working classness. They're the most but it, working class, <laughs> but in like. Uh, <laughs> in terms of like categorizing class in terms of like mm. social characteristics right like they're usually from the most impoverished places from places where capitalism offers them no nothing kind of thing this is from where the work the the army draws yeah um, it's it's, yeah. it's i don't know <laughs> generally don't join the army when things are good yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you have, have any other, other options yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, god that's depressing <laughs> um yeah, and I mean, we've talked about the draft before, and the reason America got rid of the draft is because they were like, whoa, if we get everybody in the army, then they're, we're just doing entryism for them, and it's working, as opposed to actual entryism. Um, all right, so I think, should we move on to point number five? Yes. Um, so this is where he actually gets into democratic republicanism, and it, where he's basically like, here's the thing that we got to do. Uh, he says, in particular, democratic republicanism implies that what has to be decided centrally for effective common action should be decided centrally, but that it does not, but that what does, Jesus Christ, but that what does not have to be decided centrally should be decided locally or sectorally. Rail timetables is his example. Um, then he goes on and he says, without the principles of democratic republicanism, there is precisely private ownership by individuals or groups of information, institutional powers, or political careers. This has been the meaning of the bureaucracies of the former socialist countries, of the trade unions, of the socialist and communist parties, and of our old friends, the Trotskyist sects. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in this. I kind of I knew where he was going towards for the entire book, but like this idea of extreme democracy, and more importantly, I think like this idea of what your party is, is and the form that it has if it's lucky enough to take power is going to wind up being the form of the state and so you need to have something that's like as radically democratic as possible and it's you know this is really broad and vague and it doesn't get in like it's very easy to say like the things that should be decided centrally should be decided centrally and the things that shouldn't be shouldn't be it's like that's extremely easy to say but like what does that mean especially i think when we pair it with stuff from like last week um, with like, you know, periphery and core ideas, like how exactly do you decide on resource management? How exactly do you get past these capitalist, like, uh, inequalities amongst continents, right? Um, but, you know, I don't know. If most of this book, you kind of just go, he's right. But yeah. it's also like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. He's being as well, specific I as mean, he can I, be. Yeah. 
I mean, we could you can fill some of the we could fill in some of the planks here mm. with like answers from cybernetics sure. and sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bayerian systems management. Mm. I think that's why I was I was so happy that this wound up for a lot of it being an organizational question. It really, I don't know, really made a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm sold on the idea of the democratic republic too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely like, I mean, the whole book is kind of like, it gives answers, but it's like, it's pointing you to the points where where questions need to be asked or answers need to be determined, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's very emphatically saying, we have to come up with a challenge to the status quo state. Here's what kind of form it needs to take, predicated on our ultimate aspirations of establishing communism and what we think about the role of the working class in that process. Um, it doesn't need to go into the minutiae of how that structure would be mm. designed, not necessarily because we think that can't be done, but it's kind of like a question. In in a 180-page book on strategy, yeah. it's sort of poignant if not expansive i suppose yeah and i sort of appreciate that kind of like yeah 100 the direction of travel or where it's where the book identifies the most pressing Absolutely. questions to reside I guess. yeah it's so the same thing with the definition of the working class i think maybe i'm just wondering like if i'm really picking at i don't know straws is that the same here but like should the <laughs> emphasis be on what should be decided centrally or i don't know like plans for moving forward if that makes sense like i am just thinking of this in terms of a viable system model and like he's making the same point here which is that like devolve as much as possible down to the lowest points not just because it's moral but because it's practical and it makes the most sense to do so and things will function the best but like i don't know i guess because he is saying that like this is going to be a democratic republic it's going to be extreme democracy it isn't going to be like you know some bureaucracy just sitting in there making these centralized decisions but um i don't know maybe the emphasis should have been on like future planning i suppose but i guess that kind of is what he's saying so i don't know it's i don't know i'm just kind of picking at things <laughs> here i guess they're important questions though they are important questions mm. um well andy the- yeah i was just gonna say andy does hit on very important things which like as a response to something like anarchism or ultra leftism, it's like, yeah, there are things that will need to be decided quote unquote centrally, whatever that means. Um, and you can't kind of just ignore that by just saying the council will decide. Right. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of this is like a process of his reconciling himself to certain aspects of the Leninist political strategy without re- mm. rejecting it in a lot of ways. Like there's a reference here to Bonapartist centralism and he would quite happily talk about, um, democratic centralism as an organizational form, but he he usually criticizes its de- um, devolution, I suppose, uh, <laughs> degradation. I don't know into forms of Bonapartist centralism. Yeah, particularly there's a point in this book where he's talking about the political strategy of the Comintern drifting from like a commitment to using the formation of workers councils and soviets mm. as the new form of state yeah and it's sort of like a movement toward actually just seeing the new form of state as being all power to the communist party yeah and uh, uh taking that sort of like dictum and making it a point of um doctrinaire strategy for 
the common turn and thus it's the way that the common turn tried to influence political tactics and strategy yeah. in all the countries of Western Europe. Um, so one of the things he's trying to do is push back against the idea, I guess, that communism is the dictatorship of the party or at least the dictatorship of um, a single party in which there are no factions and there are no there is no yeah. debate. Uh, there's a wider question to be had about like um, what is meant by the idea of party, yeah, um, which we could come on to in a little while. One of the things that stands out to me here is it's only briefly made reference to, but not only does he have a criticism of centralism, he also has a criticism of constitutional federalism, mm, yeah. which isn't super well elaborated, but I found it really intriguing because like... Um, sort of like liberal constitutionalism, or maybe not even, yeah, maybe just bourgeois constitutionalism, always has as it's sort of like a, another form in which it appears as like a federal constitution kind of thing. Yeah. And if you're talking about devolution of power, the ultimate reference point for that in terms of like bourgeois constitutionalism is discussions around devolution maybe in the U in terms of the UK constitution, like mm. an incredibly centralized political structure. Maybe you want to devolve certain elements after that to certain areas. And I sort of understand his critique of that to be, well, um, all you're doing is devolving certain dictatorial power that's hold by, held by a central body to regional bodies. And he makes this, this he says that um, he's not advocating for constitutional federalism, which he says... Um, hands ultimate power to lawyers and turns the rights of the units of the federation into a form of private property. Mm. So he's saying that, like, I guess I extrapolate that to be like it's the it's the same critique of power structure as he's do is as he's been describing so far, right? Like, if you make your state radically democratic, it doesn't just mean that you're going to take certain power and give it to certain people in localities but you because you're just creating mini dictators in the way that you have them centrally basically yeah um i just found that quite interesting as somebody who yeah. like in a former life found <laughs> like ideas of federalism compelling i suppose yeah no it's interesting i mean what does he call it? he calls it the dictatorship of the lawyers right and that's easy to understand i think he's just basically directly referring to america as it was formed uh back in the day mm -hmm. because like it totally makes sense. If you just give people power to interpret the law, like the final say, then you're just handing ultimate power to the lawyers and the people who interpret the law, wink, wink. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's not political. Yeah. Like, my God, if I had a nickel for every time, like, libs were like, well, it's not political. The Supreme Court, of course, it's not political. It's like, suck my nut. It's not political. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you want to say it's not political because it's not elected. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Literally. It's like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you've got a constitutional element which is non-democratic and is actually a check against any radical democratic efforts mm. it's sort of like exactly. an element of the constitution which is deliberately designed to maintain the status quo and they literally all wear wizard robes it's <laughs> like okay <laughs> yes also suspicious i mean the british constitution also has these like non-democratic checks against and funny clothes and funny clothes yeah, 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 yeah. i one thing i want to talk about as we're talking about the democratic republicanism stuff is the idea of like 
I was thinking about this a little bit, the idea of how extreme democracy and the council kind of relates to one another, because I was thinking like, okay, we can just kind of write off councils. He doesn't really say council specifically, but he says Soviets, right? As I don't think he calls them reactionary in that sense, but they're reacting to the like immediate uh, crisis of production, I guess, but like that a revolution brings. It's like, okay, holy shit, like we need to like organize ourselves kind of like politically and amongst the workers. Whereas like a council is a little bit more like just the representatives from the, from specific workplaces as opposed to Soviets, which can be a little bit more political, right? Um, and I was thinking about like how councils and the idea of extreme democracy could relate because I think that if you're going to have like an idea of what's put forward in fundamental principles, the council is still going to be pretty important because I think that you would still need representatives from firms and guilds to get together and specifically meet to talk about production. Um, and so I think like, I don't know if I have much to say on it other than that, other than that like democratic republicanism solves a lot of like everything, kind of like the political ideas and stuff like that. But I think that you would still need something like a council and councils to organize around production, if that makes sense, and the economic question. Um, just, yeah, I don't know. It's just like an idea I had, but seems necessary to have people that know what they're talking about when it comes to the economics. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know whether this is true or not, but there's a certain extent to which what you're describing there is a purely economic body you think mm. that's the case i think so that's, like, that's a kind yeah. of like economic planning body yeah that takes the structure of what you might imagine a workers council to be kind just of just a productive unit because you would need people to be like to organize purely around like hitting quotas and what those quotas are like those quotas can be decided by an extreme democracy of some kind but how you actually organize around those and how firms and guilds communicate would need i think to be have a bit more specialization mm. Do you think in this book, I don't really remember, do you think in this book he has a very specific criticism of the all power to the Soviet strategy, which isn't sort of predicated primarily on the specific circumstances that Russia was in? Like, does he have a general criticism? Because it's like, there's specific things that he talks about, right? He talks about how the development of the workers, of the Soviets in Russia was based, was spearheaded a lot by the Mensheviks and the SRs and other like reformist Marxist groups or socialist groups kind of thing. He also talks about how the working ca workers' councils were not really workers' councils. They were sort of yeah. full of peasants and other exactly. people as well yeah. kind of thing. They didn't like purely represent the working class in a lot of ways. And he also talks about the way in which it didn't really take power. It was like they gave their authority to... Um, another body which sort of basically just served as a a provisional government a lot of in disguise kind of thing yeah um i think he does is just saying that they're not up to the task sure of okay whether that's just about like the transitional phase or just period full stop the mm -hmm. soviet is not democratic enough or it's not like organizationally like kind of what is it you know what i mean so i, don't I know. mean a lot of this comes down again to that quest that criticism he makes of the left-wing Marxists and mm. the mass strike strategy, right? Like you need to have a adequate answer to the question of authority and power and what you're going to, um, what you're going to replace exactly, yeah, uh, capitalist authority with, kind of thing, yeah. And in that instance, I guess he's saying that 
the Soviets didn't present themselves as being adequate to that task yeah. as a historical example. Well, I suppose also if you just follow the logic of the Soviet, you would just eventually get to democratic republicanism because you would be like, okay, it needs to be extreme democracy. We need to have representatives of everybody, but how are we going to do that? Okay, well, we're going to come together and have like, you know, a body that meets that is, you know, organized by elections and blah, 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 blah. And I think once you really get down to it, it's like, you know, call it a Soviet, call it whatever you want, but the Soviet isn't specific enough and it isn't like an actual plan. You know what I mean? So as well, that, that could just be it. Um, so you're trying to get on to some of these next cool. ones. Cool, yeah, which number six is a really quick one. Okay. Uh, which is basically just like, the strategy has to be majoritarian. Like you yeah. have to demonstrate, the, 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 the Marxist party has to demonstrate that it represents the desires of a majority of society before you take any action yeah and there's a, a lot of instances where uh marxists have acted in or socialists i suppose have acted in minoritarian ways i guess whether it's like the bakuninist conspiracy or whether it's in some ways like the mass strike strategy mm. or the the our blankiest uh, friends the, our blankiest <laughs> friends i guess some aspects of the 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 revolution in Germany in 1918, which was like, didn't really carry a majority of people and yeah. they tried to have an insurrection anyway. So any type of insurrectionary politics, mm. which is predicated on a minority. And I guess what he is advocating, the aspect of like the Kautskyist, Kautskyan mm. political strategy that he holds with and adheres to is the idea that you best demonstrate your representing the will of a majority of people by winning a majority in a nationwide election. Yeah. And you can definitely just see the influence of Draper and people like that here because it's like, I don't know, there are always going to be factions within the working class and we'll get on to why that's okay and stuff here in a bit. But it's like, if if you claim to represent the will of the class, but you don't have the class behind you, it's like, okay, well, good luck. It's just going to kind of, you know, in the Shlomo reading we did or whatever, it's like, that's just going to kind of wind up being terror, right? So... It's not going to work. Don't try it. And it probably isn't the right thing to do if you're just trying to do insurrectionary stuff. Um, yeah. I suppose that he says at the end, too, uh, don't try and do this through one or other sort of frontist arrangements, the minority party cog driving the bigger wheel, such as the front or the Soviet. They all have to be rejected. So I suppose there's a direct criticism of the Soviet um, as it's not democratic enough, which isn't something you'd hear people say very often. Um, should we hit number seven? Yep. This one also kind of quick. Um, he says this isn't to reject either illegal <clears throat> or forcible action in defense of the immediate interests of the working class. Yeah. He basically says that like if you do something that is uh, anti-government, it can be seen as being anti-democratic, but that's just because the state isn't a democratic republic. Kind of like whatever you could see there being things like this under a democratic republic too. I don't think that's really the point. Maybe it is, but I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to pretend that it's not. He's basically just saying like. You can go out and kick some ass if you had to go out and kick mm -hmm. some ass. If there are fascists marching around, go out and kick some ass. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a strategy and tactics distinction. Like, yeah, exactly. The, the long-term strategy has to be predicated toward demonstrating your majoritarian nature of your politics, whereas mm -hmm. your day-to-day -day tactics, particularly if they're defensist in some way, yeah. or, That's a really um, good point. or they're minded toward a certain the interests of a uh, minoritarian section of society in a defensive defensive manner. There's mm -hmm. no reason why you can't both be minoritarian, but then also, yeah, have those, have those, um, what you're attempting to do can also take a sort of like illegal or even like 
pseudo-violent form yeah. kind of thing, yeah, if yeah. it's a necessity for. It's also just the same thing with the mass strike, or just the strike in general, I guess, right? It's a tactic. It isn't a strategy. Like, people confuse that as a strategy when it's really just a tactic, right? Um, it should be part of a bigger whole of basically, like, building up the workers' movement and the strategy of patience. Don't think that you can just go out and kick your ass to take power, because that would be bad. But... By all means, kick some ass. Kick some ass as a treat is basically what he's <laughs> All right, that was the last thing on strategy. Yeah, we're on to the section on the party. Mm. And basically, he's this first point is all about like class independence, right? Like, um, you there's a necessity to organize a political party standing for the independent interests of the working class. So your party doesn't represent a mixture of class interests. You don't mm. also sometimes speak to the interests of the petty bourgeoisie, particularly if you're trying to advance short-term political goals, but you solely represent the interests of the working class and seek to build up the working class and its capacities and its desire to radically transform society into something other than the sort of like yeah. capitalist bourgeois state that we have presently. Yeah, I mean, it just speaks to this idea that like, it sucks, comma, but everything is politics. And it's like, you know, it ties in with all the last points he's been making about, like, you can't just will things to happen without getting involved in politics and without having a strategy. So it, make, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, number nine, he goes on to basically just say what we've been talking about, about democratic republicanism. He says that the party absolutely 100%, 50 million percent needs to be a democratic republic. It needs to be a, a party that is advocating for true democracy, extreme democracy, a democratic republic, but it also needs to be democratically, republicanly organized in its character, um, which is, again, I, I really appreciated this idea of turning that into an organizational question, like how do we avoid becoming a bureaucratic centralist party? How do we avoid uh, becoming some dumb sect? Well, you're just kind of probably still going to be a bit of a sect, but like through the organizational character of the party and through, it's funny, we've bought this up before, but when you operate on actual socialist lines, you're actually doing socialism. Like, imagine that. When you're doing what is the right thing, which is actually holding true to democracy, um, then that's actually what's going to see you through. Um, so, yeah, not much more there. The last line, a bureaucratic centralist party, if it took political power, would inevitably create a bureaucratically centralist state. So if what you're doing isn't walking the walk and talking the talk in like a number of different ways, helping the working class, et cetera, like actually helping the working class on a concrete level, uh, it's not going to work. And it's the same thing on an organizational question. Are you actually for the working class? Okay, then you need to be organized on democratic lines in your party. So there you go. Yeah. And then it, it comes down to this idea that like, in terms of a political party, he's not necessarily talking about a political party as they function in the context yeah. of bourgeois democracy. They're talking about political party representing a section of society, a section of society which is moving toward almost seceding from present society and radically transforming society in its entirety. And when your political party has that goal... And when your political party is meant to represent the alternate authority structure, the alternate structure for running and organizing the logistics necessary to actually have a functioning society, the, st the structure that your party takes is, by definition, the structure of the future society. Yeah. Um, and so, as you say, you have to walk the walk as well as talk yeah. the talk. Yeah. 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 And... Um, 
if you're done with number nine, oh, uh, yeah, brings us on to number ten, which is all about like uh, several points actually, but um, it's basically about the working class party being independent of the capitalists and the capitalist state. A portion of this is kind of like a description of the kind of like late 19th century, early 20th century structure of social democracy, where the the aim of social democracy was to sort of build this alternate society in the form of like alternate media, alternate fundraising, just building an alternate society, mm. um, which sort of like allows it to function independent of capitalism and the capitalist state. Um, and then by extension of that, there's this question of like, the Communist Party would not take part in, uh, would not take part in ruling government coalitions as a minor, minority um, constituent because they're unwilling to administer, we ought to be unwilling to administer capitalism. Mm. And he kind of preempts some of the things that he says about um, uh, internationalism, right? And some of the things that he said in the earliest chapters of the book whereby like, Capital is international and the state really only functions as a firm within a broadly international uh, capitalist system. Yeah. And if you decide you're going to represent the interests of one work, one state in, inside of that uh, system of capitalist states, you're automatically going to end up taking decisions in the interests of the functioning of your state's capitalist system kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. And, and if we're going to be independent of capitalism, we need to eschew that from our strategic horizon. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like I liked the sentence where he says this implies, you know, you have to be independent of the capitalists and the state. He says this implies that the working class has to build up its own funds, duh, its own educational and welfare systems, and its own media, which I thought was really, I don't know, I I definitely agree with that. And I think it's it's... Yeah, I don't know. It's really fascinating. Like, I always worry about, like, say we could develop socialist everything clubs, right? And then, like, the party that those are affiliated with take power. And then it, if if things don't really go right, and then they just kind of, the, that party just winds up taking hold of the bourgeois state and using the bourgeois state, then you're kind of like, oh, fuck, now we have all of these organizations that are kind of, like, tied in a totalitarian way to the state, but the answer of like, okay, we'll make things democratic then kind of skirts around that a bit. Um, but having said that, it is a fantastic point that like we need to be doing things on our own and like you can't just pay lip service to the idea of being against everything currently and not have your own uh, welfare systems, which is a really good point, your own educational systems. That's like a question on its own, but especially your own media, right? Like you can't tell people like, you know, you need to be against everything, but also get your news from like MSNBC or whatever. Like that's duh, that's obvious. But like, you need to really give the class its own legs. And it doesn't mean organizing these things to then tell the working class to do them in your party. It does mean giving them their own legs and being like, it's okay to act in your own interests, but also like, let's have some parties every now and then and like go out and just vibe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. One of the things that struck me as I was reading these last three chapters of this book was a sort of general question around consciousness mm. and just thinking what it would take to instill these ideas in a majority of the population. Like to make a majority of the voting population of of any country, I guess, committed to the idea that they were going to vote in elections whereby their party wasn't going to take power unless it wins an outright majority 
and then also having the commitment to then follow through the sort of like social revolution that would happen on the other side of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the only way to build that kind of like conscious commitment to that strategy, which is like, if you present it to somebody in the context, I mean, I guess we're doing it right now. And we have, <laughs> wow. to, we have to reckon with it as well, you know? Like, uh-huh. if you present it in the context of a very limited understanding of politics as we understand it in our sort of, like, bourgeois capitalist context, mm. these these proposals are just wild. Yeah. And <laughs> um, the, the idea of building these institutions, educational and otherwise, which are sort of, like, independent entirely of the structure of the society is a total necessity if you're actually going to try and teach people to yeah break away and then radically transform society yeah i think when i think about like the social revolution i kind of feel like that's not something you can touch really at all beyond setting things like this up which should set themselves up if that makes sense like it makes sense if you're organizing in one of these parties to like set up bail funds and to set up like i don't know organize protests and do stuff like that but like you can't force a social cultural revolution you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like that that just doesn't work you have to let that happen naturally and if all of this stuff politically and economically goes the way that you like would like to see it go all that stuff will work itself out like if the if the working class is able to like not be alienated from the means of production anymore and, like, sort things out on their own and you're able to have the right of disposal or whatever, like, the social revolution will just happen, right? Because the necessities of the political economy of that, like, society will just make it so that, like, what bourgeois institutions could you have? So it's, like, in the short term, like, yeah, have this umbrella, like, educational systems, media systems, and all of that, while it's still democratic so it doesn't become totalitarian or anything like that in any way, but, like... Yeah, I don't know. I think, and I, all the social stuff, I think will just sort itself out if the political economy is able to sort itself out, <laughs> which is a big F. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do communism, you won't need to force a cultural revolution, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and this question is sort of central to the the communist strategy as it's presented in this book, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not it's not the sort of like ultra-left mass strike strategy of the consciousness will develop. Yeah. And all you need to do is wait for that moment and guide the working yeah. class kind of thing. And that's the like, that's sort of the mass strike strategy as it's presented in its sort of like Luxembourgish mm. form in this book. But it's more apparent in sort of like readings we've done about cancel communism yeah. and a sort of unwillingness to engage in direct um, politicking until the revolutionary moment comes. Mm. Um and this is quite a nice, quite a fun moment to bring up, I suppose. Like at the end of this this chapter, um, there's a criticism of contemporary Trotskyism, which he describes as having become like um, adopted the mass strike strategy and become sort of sub boot Bakuninist in its form, kind of thing. <laughs> Jesus. Um, because there is a real commit. Well, because the Trotskyists have held on to this idea of the democratic centralist or should we say bonapartist centralist party and because they're all organized into sects into like really minor uh, grouplets that don't represent a mm. significant portion of society they don't represent a significant social force the only role they can imagine having is 
the revolution happens, the strike happens, maybe we'll agitate for it, but really yeah. what our role is to do is to take over it. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is very reminiscent, and he brings up this point, that it's very reminiscent <clears throat> of the Bakuninist strategy of the conspiracy taking over society and leading it against its own interests, but in its supposedly in its interest kind of thing, it, which really just disempowers the working class of its ability to emancipate itself. Yeah. Which yeah. is in opposition to a core tenet of Marxism, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know how I got into this, but I just wanted to... It's a, it's a good point. In my continued effort to understand and develop perhaps a criticism of Trotskyist Marxism. Um, so next time somebody hands you a newspaper at a protest, you can be like, sit down, do you have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk the first international. Um, all right, should we move on to 11? Yeah, where are we at? Um, oh, okay, this is the one which is this, all about... This is a good one. Yeah, 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 yeah because... What did can, he say? Can, can I just read the first bit of this? Do, please he's, do, Because I think it's good to frame all of this. Yeah. He says, ideally, because he's basically talking about, like, how how can we kind of have... He gets to the subtitle of the book, how can we have left unity, right? And he basically says, ideally, this implies that there should be a single workers' party uniting both those who believe that the workers' interests can be defended through the existing state regime and those who insist on the truth, that the struggle for the democratic republic with this difference expressed, blah, 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 uh, is the only real way to move forward. And then he moves on to basically say, um, in practice, however, this is impossible. Because the state and capitalists are on their side, the loyalists and the coalitionists will always insist on a veto on revolutionary politics. It makes it necessary for those who stand for the working class, taking the political power to organize the party separate from the loyalists and from the state loyalists and coalitionists. This, in turn, poses the question of the united class front, the struggle for unity of the whole class around the immediate common goals against the split forced by loyalist coalitionist demands for a veto. I think that absolutely makes sense. And it's frustrating that, like, this is kind of where, like, the agitation comes in, but it's, like, you, the biggest thing you kind of need to be convincing people is, A, you it's okay for you to act in your own interests, that's fine, and B, like, it can't be done under the current state of things no pun intended, like it can't be done through the current state. Um, and if you kind of like let that be on equal footing with the idea that you're like opposed to the current state regime and the current state order, it's going to fall apart. Like, you know, that's kind of like a split that perhaps needs to happen early mm -hmm. than, or just like never because you don't fucking like have that as a main tenant of your political party. Sure. Yeah. 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 As a strategic strategy, it's sort of like in a lot of ways that's, a large section of the content of this book, right, from um, the broad alliance that were second international social democratic parties and how that sort of like pulled itself apart because it was this coalition of what eventually became constitutional elements and anti-constitutional elements um, and sort of continuing into the the Leninist desire to, to force the split between those elements and then mm. very rapidly recapitulating and making these various efforts to like try and unite with the quote unquote like constitutionalist yeah. left again, like the Labour parties and the surviving social democratic parties of Europe and their general unwillingness to accept the communists in their fold as being mm. like, because the, the, the communists wanted to be part of these coalitions, but wanted to also have the right to criticize them and sort of like, be a general wrecker throughout kind of thing yeah um so it's interesting this idea that like ideally we ought be able to ally with mm. the constitutionalist left with the labor party in the uk say but like mm. 
in practice, because they are constitutionalist parties, they're always going to reject yeah. anti-constitutionalist politics. Exactly. And I mean, like, it's frustrating because if you want to represent the whole working class, you know, like, that would be cool. You want to do that. But there is a split in the working class, which is the people who recognize that you can the people recognize that you cannot, you know, achieve socialism or achieve the best possible things for the working class under the current way of things and the people who believe that you can. And it's frustrating because, yeah, his point is you want to represent the whole working class, but that's just one thing. Like, perhaps no. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. What are you going to do? The whole class, huh? It's You could almost read that as a bit of an about face, but I don't know. He justifies it. And I think that, like, if you do want anything to actually happen... This is something that you need to take pretty seriously and you need to be organizationally against mm. um, capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it could be read as an about face if it was just sort of read out of historical context. But really what yeah. it is is a grappling with the history of Marxist and communist strategy through mm. the 20th century and how it sort of had to come yeah. back and forth on this question over and over and over again kind and of be thing. betrayed and how we continue again. to be like yeah you know, hoodwinked flood into the labor party leave the yeah. labor party like yeah we yeah, yeah, yeah. the question of what the dsa are going to do in relation to the democratic party kind of thing like yeah i don't know i don't know i'm sure they'll figure it out yeah. <laughs> i'm sure it'll all be fine yeah, we decided fine. everything's gonna be fine <laughs> so i'm sure it's all gonna be fine <laughs> Point 12, we get onto mm. the series of four points on broadly on internationalism. And we sort of covered some of these topics already, but like capitalism is international. And so the working class's response and the form of organization of the working class also needs to take an international um, form itself into an international. And um, going back to the sections in this book that are about the international kind of thing, like he. He celebrates the the political action of the first international as being actually international in its orientation. It's organized around various forms of political and material economic solidarity from one working class to another, from one one working class party in one country to another working class mm -hmm. party in another. Um, and that sort of describes that sort of beyond the second international for the most part the political strategy of communists and Marxists have all been around building up strong enough political parties internal to specific countries and sort of like uh, reckoning with what's going to be the conflict between the, cap the proletariat and the bourgeoisie in each country. Um, and here he is trying to really emphasize the importance of internationalism to yeah. communist strategy, particularly when you look back at the 20th century and sort of is a broad critique of the idea of socialism in one country. And it basically necessitates forms of autarky, like coming back to this idea that all capitalist countries are basically just firms internal mm. to the world capitalist system, like in the same way that banks can withdraw credit or funding from any capitalist firm inside a country, like the other capitalist firms of the world and the financing structure of world capitalism will withdraw support from any single country that tries to embark upon a socialist transformation of society. So mm. he sort of makes the broad point that the working class party, the party that seeks to represent the working class, kind of needs to at least be a continental party and mm -hmm. not just just um, internal to, not just a party internal to single states. And yeah. 
the movement towards socialist transformation has to be at least sort of continent, if not worldwide, and not simply country. Yeah, specific. I wrote in the margins of my of my PDF, I wrote, wow, next to that point, <laughs> because it's just like, okay, like, I yeah, don't know, it's so intense. You've already set quite a hard task. Yeah, when he says taking power in any single country, unless the Workers' Party is at, on the verge of at least a continental majority, is likely to lead to disaster, it's like, okay, wow, like, Jesus Christ. And I mean, like, continental, it makes sense why he's saying that. At first, I was a little bit like, that seems arbitrary, but, like, I do understand why he's making the point of, like, it needs to at least be continental. In theory, like, if it's not a world system, then it's all going to kind of fall apart. But I understand what he's saying. But also, like, when you think about the differences between nations in terms of, like, the development of class consciousness or whatever in between, like in between nations on the same continent, it's like, wow, okay, like, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Wow is the only thing I got to say about that. It's mm -hmm. just like, oh, that's a that's an ask, folks. Yeah, when I was reading that section, I was almost sort of imagining a scenario whereby a party wins a majority in a specific country, but then refuses to take power because the rest of the workers' party in its immediate mm -hmm. geographical vicinity outside of its country's borders is not at a position to take that step as well. Yeah, but you uh, but do I was that. sort of imagining that like if a if a but like because like capitalism is global and it's sort of capitalist politics are also global and the sort of material basis of what drives movements in politics is sort of global the things that will enable the develop the successful development of a large majoritarian working class party a mass party in any one country are going to be replicated in countries nearby i think even if they don't win their various elections at the same time or get themselves in the position to take power in, in exactly the same moment i feel like it sort of makes sense that it would be a sort of like continent-wide swelling and ballooning of these ideas kind of thing it doesn't seem hope I mean, it doesn't seem any more hopeless than the idea of building a mass party in one country. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, one would hope it would do that. I mean, it's like I get the point that he's making is maybe like if it doesn't do that, it's doomed. But like, yeah, one would hope that that would happen on a continental scale. One would hope it would just happen immediately on a world scale. Um, but we'll see. How will everybody, I guess, react to the imperatives uh, uh, of, of communism and of, uh, of an economic mode, I suppose? Um, that leads us nicely into point 13, uh, where he basically just says uh, you can't have full class political consciousness unless it's uh, uh, on an international scale. This is basically fairly, fairly straightforward. Like if you – the class consciousness, first of all, can only happen truly – when the working class recognizes that it is an, an international class. So, like, by definition, then, class consciousness is not when one working class in one tiny little nation figures it out. Because it's like, no, you have to recognize that you're part of a world system. Capitalism is a world system. The nation state is fake news. It's just a firm on the on the uh, world economy. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly small point, innocuous one, but yeah, extremely important. And I think that, like is perhaps one of the biggest problems with, like, all left movements today, right? Um, yeah. Is that the working class is international. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. And 14, again, like, a rehashing of some of those ideas. It's basically just taking this general criticism of 
bureaucratic slash Bonaparte centralism and legal feudalism, no, feudalism, <laughs> federalism, and Same saying that right. both of these formats can't be the model for the party and therefore the state that you seek to create. And he's saying that it's, this is even more vital on a continent and global international level. Yeah. You still have to continue to reject centralism and feudalism. Feudalism. Again? <laughs> oh, federalism. Well, also feudalism. Um, yeah, reject feudalism <laughs> as well. Um, Return to... So basically meaning like the, the, the principle of decisions being made at the levels where they're most necessary has to apply on an international level. Yeah. It's recursion, <laughs> folks. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, those are Mike McNair's 14 points for success to live a happy and just life. He goes into a lot of like what I haven't said, and it would be interesting to kind of like get into those a bit, but it's kind of unnecessary. I don't know. I kind of touched on the one thing that I was a little frustrated with. I get that this is a book about revolutionary strategy, but I think something did should have been said about like how communism will actually operate like i know that this is just a book about how to get us to there but just like a little bit to be like hey here's what to expect here's what would be necessary but we're not going to talk about that right now um because i think that like the form that socialism and communism winds up taking uh informs the strategy to get there and i think to just kind of not talk about it is just kind of be like yeah well whatever like obviously this is a book that is mainly just a history, you know what I mean? Um, and him commenting on it and being like, here's how we can learn from our history and move forward. Um, but you do have to kind of, I think, look a bit about at the future as well if you kind of want to understand, well, what is the dictatorship of the proletariat going to mean for economic and, like, social reproduction? Um, and how can we get there? Um, but having said that, just read this book, go read Fundamental Principles, and then you have the whole blueprint outlined and you can make fun of all your Trotsky's friends. <laughs> It'll be the godhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a couple of interesting points of like strategy that are worth pointing out, but sort of touching on just at the end of this this final chapter. One which we sort of put touched on, but not in, in its entirety, is to emphasise what we are trying to do in constructing a mass working class party is to create an oppositional force. And not a political party vying for power in the yeah. context of like the normal running of uh, bourgeois society kind of thing, but creating a force which is opposed mm -hmm. to it. Um, and then he makes a sort of broad advocacy of what he calls a strategy of patience. And we've kind of touched on this several mm -hmm. times when we've been looking at this book kind of thing. But like he makes this general criticism of... Uh, Marxism as it's emerged from the 20th century and he sort of describes socialists as being broadly uh, ethical uh, having a broadly ethical and emotional commitment and it sort of leads them to having sort of like seeking uh, get rich quick solutions whereby <laughs> they sort of like enter into um, what, what does he describe it enter into the capitalist politic politicians government games kind of thing <laughs> um, so he's sort of advocated for Avoiding participation in the, I don't know the games the pet the petty come and petty, play the game petty political games yeah of politics as it exists hundred percent and I think going off of rise that rise above it exactly rise above, it. Rise above. <laughs> you're just on point with all these song references Dan. um 
He, uh, going off of that, I mean, like, he has a really good take, I think, on the idea of reform versus revolution, which is basically saying, like, that ain't it. Which is funny, because we've had a number of, like, people we've read on this show be like, that's not the real question. Mm -hmm. But he's like, no. He says the real divide is on one side for taking responsibility in a coalition government to run the capitalist state, and the other one is, like, actually looking after the independence of the interests of the working class. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, that isn't the question at all. It's funny. It's just like it's a responsibility question. Yeah. Um, and I really dig that. I appreciate that a lot, I think. Yeah. It's almost like like that's not the strategic question for Marxists. That's mm. the strategic question that divides Marxists exactly. from. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the sort of like socialist reformers, I suppose, the yeah. social reformers. Because like people who are for reform or whatever will generally be like, well, what, you just wouldn't support it if the Labour Party was like, uh, everybody has to pet a dog once a day or something like that. Like, if there was something in the interest of the working class, you wouldn't support it. It's like, well, no, that's not the question at all. Yes, you would support something like National Pet a Dog Day, but like, you can't take responsibility for government. You can't let those like, support for reforms lead you into coalition because then as dan would say you're playing the game <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. there, there is there is no adv advantage to joining a government coalition whereby you get to get your policy of national pet a dog day but then you have to <laughs> then you have to acquiesce to whole a whole load of yeah i think of a think of a horrible joke example of a oh, policy god. that you wouldn't want to oh god <laughs> um, um yeah so I don't know. He wind, The last sentence is, Dan, uh, he's talking about Kautsky or whatever. And I did say like the last sentence. It's good. It's really it, good. Yeah, yeah. He says, it needs a strategy of patience like Kautsky's, but one that's internationalist and radically democratic, not one that accepts the existing order of nation states. It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, I still have all my frustrations about like patience, <laughs> really patience, but like what else are you going to do? And like, yeah, I don't know. He doesn't real well. No, he does come out and say this in like the first couple of chapters. Like, what are you doing in downtimes? You're helping the working class. You know what I mean? And like in doing that, if you do it the right way, you're helping build class consciousness. So, is it a strategy of patience, or are you putting all of your effort into helping people? So just think of it like that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But patience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm. The strategy is Kautskyism plus. Yeah, <laughs> it is Kautskyism plus exactly. Mm. Great. Great. Well, great. We finished another <laughs> book. Um, yeah, read this one. Definitely. Yeah, great book. Do it. It's, it's really been good. And if you don't, I don't know, if you're lazy, just read chapter nine. Because uh, <laughs> it, it is where he stops talking about Trotskyists for a second. And it's like, here's what we should do. But if you are really interested in the minutiae <laughs> of the various Trotskyist internationals. Yeah. Um, it's sort of it, like yeah. internationals all the way down. It is. Then go and read chapter eight. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Fucking yeah. Chapter the longest eight. chapter Christ. in the book, I think. <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, I don't know. It, it, having an understanding of when you're explaining to normal people, like, okay, well, we can't be coalitionists because, okay, well, we have to be against all of this stuff because, okay, well, what does abolish the police mean? It means you're fucking universal conscription, stuff like that. Like, it helps having historical context and, like, I don't know. It it can be a bit of a drag to like read through the history of the first international, the second international. Trotsky pokes his head up. The fourth international, like it can be a bit of a drag, but it does help inform why we believe these things because we've tried everything under the sun, basically. And like, there's a reason it needs to be internationalist. Okay, we'll look at what happened at the beginning of World War One. You know, it, there's a reason we need to be anti-coalitionists. Like what happened at the beginning of World War One. Like. I don't know. The history does inform quite a bit of it, and it gives you some kind of, like, 
oomph, I guess, mm. for your beliefs. So there you go. Yeah. And if your primary form of political praxis is arguing with people on the <laughs> internet and you would like to know exactly what dates Trotsky made the wrong strategic decisions that led to the present state of the quote-unquote organized Marxist web, um, if, you want to, you. if you want to spend all your time in internet ranting screens, yeah, read some of, the, some of the other sections of the book. Yeah. Read the book. Yeah, it, it's extremely readable too. So Mike McNair, I will expect my check in the mail shortly. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. Cool. Anything, anything else? Any like closing thoughts on on it? The challenge of left unity. I now fully see like why he called it that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm, it's good. It's good. It's my closing thought. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, at, we're doing the kind of like gradual trailer. Gradual wind down. <laughs> well, as I was gonna say, as I tend to do, I don't eat dinner before we record these things. I'm extremely hungry. Um, so I might get going, but. Uh, Read the book, read the Weekly Worker, and um, yeah, let's make a sect. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd love to make a sect with you, (laughs) Jack. Yes. (laughs) I think we have made a sect, quite frankly. It's a sect of two, but it's a sect. (laughs) Now we just need to find some some independent political groups that we can move into and try and dominate. Exactly. uh, The Labour Party. (laughs) If I've learned nothing from this book, it's do entryism into the Labour Party. Uh-huh. Oh. Right. I was thinking about doing entries and into the local litter picking society. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, no, the worst kind of reactionary bourgeois politics is uh, yeah. self-organized litter picks. Yes, fascism, Dan. It's petty fascism, as you once called people cleaning up graffiti. I, I, I'm, I'm there for that. I agree. Well, no, I don't mind the people who clean up the graffiti. It's the people who direct all of their political outrage toward oh, the sure. idea that this, this city that we live in is full of graffiti when there's basically none. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I know litter when there's basically no litter. I will say, I my family maybe did... it's because there are hordes hordes of Uh-oh. like do-gooding like Fox. sexagenarians that come out in the night and do secret <laughs> litter pits just to like keep this this uh, it's beautiful city this beautiful clean. city clean yeah i mean it's dirty no, so what are you gonna do i mean i will say though to push back a little bit my family okay. used to organize a super sunday uh litter picking thing uh on the beach where we used to live and before everybody went and watched the game we used to pick up a bunch of trash so you know pick up some okay. trash if you want i take it all back okay thank god yeah when I'm old, that's all I'm going to do. I don't know. What else am I going to do? Yeah. Go to my allotment, I guess. Having said that, um, about the allotment and butted up, my garlic's come up. Hooray. Hooray. Yeah. Mm. Two of the cloves. I don't know. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay. Uh, I've been Jack. This is, We finally finished Revolutionary Strategy. Mike McNair. One of the books you got to read if you want to be a leftist. Copyright. Um, and it's been great. And uh, I will see you next week, I believe. In theory. <laughs> um. Thank you, Jack. I've been Dan. I uh, am incredibly appreciative <laughs> if you're still listening. Chopped. Um, yep, 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 yep. See you next week. See you next week. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.